What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. Cole, what's going on, man? Not too much. Feels lonely in the studio without the extra guests, huh? I know. Just our soothing voices today. A big echo, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. How's uh, how's work going? It's going well. With the new gig? Yeah, looks like I'm going to be uh, working neurology. Heck yeah. Mm-hmm. So like my wife, we're just... Two neurology people Just now. two neurology experts. <laughs> Someday. Not, not a big deal. Yeah. No, it's, it's fun. It's good. I enjoy what, it. What are you uh, doing as far as... So are you are you doing any dispensing at this point or is no. it all... No. So no it's dispensing. all clinical. Mm-hmm. Nice. I get, well, yeah. No, no. Me personally, no. Not dispensing. So like, are you seeing... Like, how does it work for in your situation? Is it is it like an AmCare feel where you're actually seeing patients? It's kind of like or? an AmCare feel, except they're not like scheduled. I do um, education for specialty meds, usually over the phone, not too often in person. And then I work to get their drugs approved. So I do like the PAs and appeals and stuff. Okay. Yeah. PAs are fun, aren't they? Probably Yeah, I guess the technicians do most of those, but we do appeals. So like the P- appeals are actually kind of fun. It's like a research paper. With, you're kind of arguing with the insurance company as to why they should be on this. Then you cite all the literature and stuff. Yeah. Kind of cool. That's cool. And especially when they approve it, which actually they do more often than not. Yeah. I find that if you give them, I feel like once you start with pulling out the literature, at least in my experience, most of mine was with hep C when it right. comes to the appeals. When you start pulling out the literature, um, sometimes I do it with the diabetes meds if they're being ridiculous mm-hmm. about it. They tend to not have time to read all that stuff. That's so what you, I'm thinking. You send them it's, an absurd amount of articles, right. they're going to let You overwhelm them. They're like, <sighs> yeah. I do not you feel just, like reading this. You McDonald's approve. You McDonald's <laughs> them. You just force it down their throat <laughs> and you just you just take it. Well, you, that's it. They just accept their life and approve it. No offense to any pharmacists who do that on the insurance's end. I'm yeah. sure you guys, you know, do your due diligence, right? Yeah. But also, stop making our lives so hard. <laughs> I know, just to prove them. Jeez, so, I'm trying to help somebody here. <laughs> Why don't you don't you don't want this person to get better? You want their Hep C to stay? Right. <laughs> no, nah, that's cool, man. Um, are you uh, you missing the the dispensing the community retail life at all? Mm, ask me in a month. Okay. Right now, not really. I'd be shocked if in a month you're like, <laughs> I really want to go back. Right. <laughs> no, this is great. It's a great job. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome, man. Very cool. So uh, how in the world did you come up with today's topic? Uh, well, I was training on the um, GI service, and uh, we were doing with IBSD and hepatic encephalopathy, you use Zyfaxin, mm-hmm. and uh, you also use that for what we're talking about today, yes. which is the acronym SIBO, which is Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. Yeah. Have you ever heard of it before this? I have heard of that, but when you sent me the acronym, I'm not going to lie. I was like, yeah, yeah, we can totally do that. I had to look it up. See, this, the and literal then, term SIBO sounded familiar, but other than that, I would have probably not been able to tell you what it meant. And I read when then when I actually looked up what SIBO meant, then I was like, I've heard of that. I have yeah. no idea what to do for it at the moment. Right. But now I'm like, honestly. And now all our listeners are going to know what to do. <laughs> yeah. And I thanks guess to I jumped the gun research. and kind of already told them, but don't worry, you're going to learn a lot more than just the Syfaxin piece. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Yet we, to be determined. We, we have literally spent weeks researching this topic. <laughs> we know everything there is to know about SIBO. Have not been able to put the literature down. Uh, but yeah, so SIBO, as it says in the name, is uh, localized to the small intestine. So what's happening is the small intestine or the small bowel is being colonized by um, anaerobic, aerobic bacteria, microbes that are usually in the colon. So that's the problem. These bacteria are supposed to be in the colon, but now they're... Um, colonizing the small intestine, which makes diagnosis very interesting. But we'll talk about um, 
how to appropriately diagnose it. So, and, and that's, I think that's when people first think about like the, you know, the intestines, you think bacteria. Oh yeah. Right. Our intestines bacteria have everywhere. Right. Yeah. Large intestines where they're supposed to be yeah. primarily. So, um, there's also a lot of other, you know, disease states that can kind of make you more susceptible, um, to developing this bacterial overgrowth. Um, so there can be things like whether it's a like anatomic condition, so something like um, intestinal diverticulosis or something like uh, Crohn's disease or radi- radi- uh, radiation, you know, surgery, something like that. Um, it can be, you know, some sort of a decrease or abnormal motility in the small intestine. So even like diabetes um, or more severe conditions like scleroderma, derma. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, it could be maybe they've had some sort of like a, um, gastroclonic fistula. Um, there's lots of other different things, uh, alcoholism, cirrhosis, even end stage renal disease can, can put you at risk for this immunodeficiency because mm-hmm. there's a, um, immunoglobulin component. So there's lots of different, uh, things that can kind of make you um, susceptible to developing this. Mm-hmm. Did um, you mention PPIs? You said hypo- no, no. There's also hypochlorhydria, which mm-hmm. a lot of times comes from long-term use of PPIs, which can lead to this as well. Yeah, or uh, what's that? Uh, atrophic gastritis. Sounds I, good to me. I've seen that in the thing. I haven't looked it up yet to know exactly what that uh, that actually means. It sounds interesting. I added it to my to-do list to look up. <laughs> it's like your word of the day on the toilet paper. Yeah, you know, basically every ply. Something new. I have a I have a running list of just topics. When I hear something, I go, I don't know nothing about that, and I'll add it to my, <laughs> uh, my iPad list. It's growing ex- exponentially, and there's not a it's, it's unfortunate. The thing about this one, and I think I recognize it probably recently because I'm pretty sure it was at least referenced uh, in our IBSD podcast or IBS podcast, which we did pretty recently. Um, but when you look at the symptoms, it comes across very similarly. Uh, it's important to delineate because. Um, the treatment's going to be slightly different, or at least the the amount that you use of cyfaxin can be different. So it's important to diagnose appropriately. But uh, before that, specifically bacteria, common bacteria that are going to be uh, included would be like streptococci, bacteroides, uh, lactobacillus as well, uh, can cause inflammation. Um, you're going to see uh, the, the symptoms I was talking about would be like diarrhea, abdominal pain, bloating, um, that sort of thing. But what this causes is um, effects in the intestine like carbohydrate malabsorption, fat malabsorption, uh, protein malabsorption. And in more severe cases, you can have uh, vitamin issues. So you can have deficiencies and excess depending on what's going on. B12 deficiency is pretty common uh, in patients who, when it's pretty severe. Uh, But also in contrast, you could have elevated folate or vitamin K, uh, and this is because of bacterial synthesis and um, increased intestinal permeability also contributes to the increased vitamin K levels. Uh, so it, it's not really diagnosed when you get a vitamin B12 level or something like that, but that's just something else that can indicate a uh, severe syndrome. And so as far as like what's kind of going on, because there's a lot of symptoms and, and ways that this can kind of present, but um, you mentioned uh, carbohydrate malabsorption. So typically speaking... 
when you have a carbohydrate kind of degradation breakdown, um, you're you're getting this production of like these short chain fatty acids, um, propionate, acetate, um, lactate, and then you also get things like carbon dioxide, hydrogen, methane, which those are going to be important here in a minute when we talk about some of the uh, potential diagnoses. But um, when those uh, enterocytes that are responsible for that breakdown are damaged, uh, basically, or, you know, or, you know, and that can be damaged from uh, overproduction of bacteria and things like in this case, you get um, basically uh, diarrhea as the result because you're getting a decrease in that activity of some of those breakdowns, like so the disaccharide breakdown. Um, and you can also get uh, like fermentation of those unabsorbed carbohydrates. And so that's leading to like the bloating and the distension, flatulence, all that fun stuff. And so your the whole carbohydrate kind of breakdown process is, is uh, unfortunately damaged. And then, like you said, Cole, with, with fat and protein, fat's another big one, fat malabsorption. Um, that can lead to uh, the weight loss and deficiencies in all the vitamins and things like, especially the fat-soluble vitamins, obviously, like Cole was talking about. Um, and it, it just becomes a, uh, a, a problem that gets potentially worse and worse. It can in, influence other or cause other comorbidities and things like that that you then have to treat. Yep. And you mentioned the protein. So protein malabsorption is um, from damage to the epithelial barrier. So this is going to increase intestinal permeability, decrease mucosal uptake of amino acids um, and intraluminal degradation um, or and the interluminal degradation of protein precursors. Um, so all these will lead to um, nutritional issues with the patient. There's also systemic effects, so it can produce toxins uh, with the increased permeability in SIBO. It's been associated with um, various systemic complications. Lactic acidosis is uh, rare, but uh, is possible, uh, especially when it's associated with short bowel syndrome or um, some type of bypass, specifically a jejuno-ileal bypass. Uh, if that happened, you'd probably have altered mental status, confusion, coma, slurred speech, even seizures, uh, but that's very rare. One thing, um, too, you mentioned, like with the vitamin B12 deficiency. So sometimes patients will have, uh, will show up with like a macrocytic anemia presentation. So, and normally we would obviously be thinking vitamin B12 deficiency or folate deficiency to cause that. Um, but in these patients, the vitamin B12, yes, can be, can be low, Um However, uh, folate sometimes can be elevated. Like in Cole mentioned, um, things can, some of these, these values can go up, but folate and vitamin K as well, um, tend to be elevated specifically in this disease due to, um, like overproduction of bacterial synthesis. Um, and so you're definitely, uh, it's, if you're, if you're seeing the macrocytic anemia and you check and it's the, the B12 deficiency, um, and then your folate levels, cause a lot of times you'll check both folates actually up. Um, and they have some of these other symptoms that may lead you down the path of this diagnosis. Right. Uh, so going more into the common symptoms to look for, I mentioned a few, the most common. So the majority of patients are going to have bloating, which is obviously very nonspecific, uh, but other common symptoms, flatulence, uh, abdominal discomfort and pain, chronic watery diarrhea, uh, but also um, steatorrhea or like fatty stools with greasy or bulky stools. Um, this is rare and usually occurs in patients uh, who have an altered anatomy also, like a blind loop syndrome. 
Um, children, if they're young, you can it, the incidence increases with age, but this can also happen in children. Usually there's going to be a failure to gain weight. Um, and in severe cases, patients um, can have significant weight loss. And so over the course of time, if this goes undiagnosed or at least it's not treated appropriately, you'll probably see um, some weight loss uh, due to the diarrhea and poor oral intake. Um, patients with severe SIBO, when they've had a bypass surgery, um, can have the vitamin D or the vitamin deficiencies like Mike mentioned. Um, children can have metabolic bone disease due to vitamin D deficiency. Um, all those are very severe. Usually you're just going to have the significant diarrhea um, and abdominal pain that's going to cause somebody to come and uh, usually would be diagnosed appropriately after a trial of some standard uh, meds for that. Um, as far as like the physical examination, um, a lot of times the uh, the patients seem fairly normal as from a physical exam point of view. Um, sometimes, like we said earlier, the abdomen can be a little distended, um, but they refer to uh, something, if you're listening to like bowel sounds, is this uh, identifiable succession splash um, due to fluid-filled loops of bowel. Um, and they say they can actually be palpable. Um, so... As far as that, the, the physical examination, probably nothing too crazy there. Um, the laboratory findings, we've already talked about some of the other things like um, macrocytic anemia um, or uh, the presence of fecal fat um, could be one. Uh, patients also can have low levels of thiamine, um, niacin, um, along with those elevated folate and vitamin K levels like we already mentioned can kind of be indicative of, of this situation. Um there are cases where patients will also have microcytic anemia, uh, and that can be from like bleeding um, due to ulcers, and they're uh, formed in like stagnant inner um, intestinal loops. Um, or if it's been, if there's like a colitis or something like that present, there may be bleeding. So the patient forms microcytic anemia as kind of a um, secondary outcome to that. Uh, endos um, endosco uh, endoscope findings, you're basically um, thinking. Uh, pretty normal as far as like uh, endoscopic appearance and histopathology um, when it comes to the small intestine and colon. Um, and so, you know, they may find in like very severe cases um, if the patient has any kind of like colitis or um, ileitis or something like that, they may find like mucosal edema, um, loss of normal vasculature pattern, um, patchy uh, arrhythmia, something like that. Um, but that's going to be kind of, you know, more severe, rare cases. And an endoscopy is not necessarily um, indicated in all patients. If you're suspecting SIBO, it just might be incidental from ruling out UC or Crohn's or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's important to note that the, um, the histopathology of the small intestine colon is usually normal. And that's as opposed to Crohn's or UC. So it's, it's rare, like you said, that you would have the inflammation, the colitis and the ileitis. Um, diagnosis, I think is pretty interesting. There's a couple ways uh, to do it. Um, it should be done in the suspected patients if they have bloating, flatulence, abdominal discomfort, chronic diarrhea. Um, it can be established with a positive carbohydrate breath test uh, or a bacterial concentration of greater than 10 to, th to the third colony form forming units per milliliter um, in a jejunal aspirate culture. So even by the name, you can tell that the carbohydrate breath test is probably going to be the more simple one. And that's uh, what's generally recommended because it's much easier to do. 
So the way the carbohydrate breath test worked, uh, we talked before about carbohydrate malabsorption, and this is kind of related to that. Um, it's based on the principle of the metabolism of a test dose of a carbohydrate substrate, so like lactulose or glucose, um, by bacterial flora leads to the production of uh, what they call an analyte, so like hydrogen or methane. This is what it's, the, it's detecting. Um, it's absorbed and ultimately excreted in the breath. So what they do is they will give you lactulose or glucose, and in a normal individual, over the course of two to three hours, um, that is when they would have the hydrogen or methane come out in their breath because that's normal um, digestion absorption once the food gets to the, or the carbohydrate gets to the uh, colon and is digested two to three hours later, you're going to get that. If there's bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, then that's going to happen faster. So they're going to get an early peak um, in the breath hydrogen and methane levels. And that is how they know that this is probably a bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine and needs to be treated. So they'll use um, lactulose, I think, more often. Um, but they can also use glucose. It's rapidly absorbed by the proximal small bowel. Uh, when it's used as the substrate, it's metabolized to hydrogen and the small bowel lumen prior to absorption. But either way, if you use lactulose or glucose, that's uh, kind of the same line of thinking when you're doing the breath test. And as far as someone coming in to have this, you know, kind of test protocol done, they need to make sure that they're avoiding antibiotics for four weeks prior to testing. Um, they need to make sure that they are holding certain drugs that are like prokinetic drugs. Um, it's like metoclopramide or something like that, um, as well as like laxatives and things for at least a week prior to testing. Um, you want to avoid complex carbohydrates for at least 12 hours prior to testing. So things that are high in fiber um, or you know, breads, pastas, things like that, um, as well as uh, potentially what, uh, looking out for like fermentable foods, things like that. Um, they do need to fast for at least eight hours. Sometimes they recommend 12. And then um, things like strenuous exercise um, or cigarette smoking should be avoided on the day of the breath test. S specifically, smoking actually increases breath hydrogen levels and um, increases gastric transit time, which is, you know, one of the reasons why when people stop smoking, they tend to put some weight back on. Right. Right. Um, and then hyperventilation associated with strenuous exercise decreases your breath hydrogen levels. So they can they can kind of tamper the, the exam. So those are some things just to kind of follow, the get with the patient, make sure they're kind of aware of those. Yep. And to finish up on the test, so if you're interpreting it, an absolute increase in hydrogen by 20 parts per million above baseline within 90 minutes is diagnostic of SIBO. Uh, methane is a little different. So that was hydrogen. Methane, a level greater than 10 parts per million at any point during the test, uh, is diagnostic of intestinal methanogen overgrowth, so something they call IMO. Previously, they would just call this SIBO and say, oh, this patient's probably got SIBO. But apparently, this IMO is more specific. Uh, it more accurately describes the condition as um, these methanogens are not bacteria and may also overgrow in the colon, and uh, not just the small intestine. So this would actually be considered a different syndrome if their methane levels were high along with their hydrogen levels. There might be a methane overgrowth. Um, so that's interesting. The test performance, um, if somebody has uh, like short bowel syndrome, which would mean that the 
carbohydrates would get to the colon faster than in a normal bowel, uh, they might have a false positive result. Uh, false negative results may occur in 30 to 40% of patients uh, if there are low anaerobic organism counts. Um, so it's not 100%, um, but this is what they used to diagnose it and the drugs used to treat it are, are reasonably safe. So um, if they get it, if they get a positive, they usually just go for it. If they've already tried other antidiarrheal meds that were unsuccessful. So treatment, I'm going to jump into yeah, that. Jump into is there it. anything else we need to go over? Nope. I think we covered it. So treatment is extremely complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so typically speaking, you have an overgrowth of bacteria. So what are we going to do? Obviously. Gonna kill those bacteria. Kill those bacteria. Slaughter them. <laughs> it's just total wipeout. So antibiotic therapy. Actually, is, not total wipeout. That's inappropriate because we're reducing rather than eradicating, but. Go ahead. No, we're eradicating. Okay. That's it. We're not on a plant game. Mites eradicating. <laughs> I don't want you to have a single bacteria in your entire <laughs> GI tract. Nothing. <laughs> um, no, so antibiotic therapy is kind of like our first um, treatment option that we have. So antibiotic therapy can be, there's a different uh, regimens we can use, but it can be based on, you know, the pattern of bacterial overgrowth, the presence of certain um, prevalence of certain like risk factors, Um you know, for certain things like drug resistance or, um, you know, antibiotic allergies or cost or whatever the case may be, but there's a lot of different options that we can potentially go with. Um, one of the most common ones and unfortunately not the cheapest option no. is, uh, our Zyfaxin. Um, and they actually dose it as, uh, a total daily dose of 1650 milligrams per day for 14 days. Um, so that's one option, probably the most effective option yes. by a lot of the data. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, though, uh, not the cheapest um, drug out there. No, and it's pretty well tolerated. And like you said, it's it's effective. So the 1,650 milligrams, so it comes in a couple of doses, but 550 milligrams is more common. So it's usually dosed three times a day for 14 days. So as opposed to using Zyfaxin for... Other conditions like uh, hepatic encephalopathy or liver issues, which could be a, a long-term treatment, it's only 14 days. So it seems reasonable to be covered. And um, I submitted a, some appeals for this this week and we were able to get it covered multiple times. So um, they will cover it. And, and usually they like to see that um, a patient has tried some antidiarrheal medication like um, um, Imodium or something. Um, not necessarily because that's used to treat SIBO, but because the patient's probably self-medicated with that before coming to the doctor or before the, they diagnosed them. They had them try some standard antidiarrheal therapies before they did the breath test and that sort of thing. Uh, but yes, it is expensive, but can be approved. Um, so that's for SIBO. So I, I briefly mentioned the methane issue, the IMO. So mm -hmm. if a patient has IMO, they actually use a combo. So they still use the Zyfaxin 550 three times a day for 14 days, but they add on neomycin twice daily. Um, so I suppose that this can give, uh, yeah, this can give similar uh, symptoms, but to make sure that you don't have what they might think is a recurrence of SIBO um, or to just make sure you get good symptom re uh, resolution, combo it with neomycin 500 milligrams. Yeah. Um, as far as alternative options for SIBO, if, if maybe the patient just has no insurance or whatever the case may be, um, they, you can use things like Bactrim. Um, you can use some of the fluoroquinolones. So things like, um, norfloxacin is one of the, uh, 
floor quinones listed, which I you almost never see that, Doug. So I'm actually curious now. Nope. Once once a, if we have time to go deeper into this later on, I'd like to look and see if maybe that one actually has been studied specifically in this right. situation. Um, Cipro though is the other floor quinolone. Uh, Metronidazole, which you know we would kind of expect, and then uh, also tetracycline. Um, there's also some data with augmentin as well. Um, there was a few randomized like control trials, but um, the one in particular looked at 142 patients um, with SIBO uh, over seven days of, or they gave them either seven days of Zyfaxin or metronidazole. Uh, and then they were looking at basically the glucose breath test normalization rates at one month. Um, those those normalization rates were much higher in patients that were treated with Zyfaxin compared to the metronidazole. So it's like 63% versus 44%. So pretty big difference there. So that's obviously statistically significant as well. So Zyfaxin probably needs to be the one we're going after if we can get it covered. Yes. And a lot of those other antibiotics, um, even still, a lot of the data is based on observation. It's not necessarily randomized trials to, to treat SIBO. Um, so yeah, Cyvaxin seems to be the best option. So that should knock it out. We'll talk about recurrence, uh, in a second, but, um, the other issues we spoke of, one being, uh, nutrient deficiency, the other being inflammation. So, uh, you want to address and correct any micronutrient deficiency, whether it's B12, fat soluble vitamins, iron, thiamine, or niacin. Um, you want to, uh, pull lab for that and just make sure it's addressed, especially if the, um, the patient seems like they're at risk for that sort of thing. Uh, if they have an associated ileocolitis, so they have inflammation uh, in the colon or the ileum, um, and it's usually mild and usually resolves after you've treated the SIBO. Uh, but if it uh, is severe and um, continues after treatment, then you're kind of going to want to go through the um, IBS um, uh, treatment guideline for lack of a better term, to, to treat I, it that IBD. way. IB, I, IBD, yeah, sorry. Yeah. We want to go down the IBD algorithm to, to treat that. Yeah, definitely uh, a little bit more complicated than IBS, unfortunately. <laughs> um, as far as like response rates, you know, so it sounds very easy to treat this seven days of antibiotics, no harm, no foul. Um, unfortunately, though, about 40% of patients that have uh, that develop SIBO in the first place will have persistent symptoms after that initial antibiotic treatment. So um, recurrent SIBO is, is also uh, frequent um, in patients who have been treated in longer antibiotic durations as well. So um, there was a study that looked at um, 80 patients that had SIBO. Recurrence um, rates were three, six, and nine months is what they were kind of like breaking it up as um, and seeing how quickly they had recurrent symptoms. Um, and these patients were all had been treated with Zyfaxin. But at three, uh, three months, it was basically 13%. Six months, it was 28%. And by nine months, it was 44% had recurrent um, SIBO. So um, recurrence was more likely when you kind of looked at the data um, in older adults, which makes sense. Um, and also patients who had a history of appendectomy um, or that had chronic proton pump inhibitor use. So if they've been using PPIs for years and years, then that also more risk. It's another reason not to use PPIs for long term. Yeah. I feel like we're the only ones that advocate for that. Pharmacists in general are the ones that go for that. I feel yeah. like everybody else is kind of like, oh, shut up. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, just stay on a PPI. It's fine. It's like a vitamin. Yeah, there's just so many reasons to not, you know. And I mean, I guess I get that people have GERD and it's so easy to self-medicate with it that uh, it's hard to police. Yeah. I also, I, I will admit, I've never seen any of those long-term side effects myself. 
like inpatients. Yeah. And you know, I pro- I don't think I really have either. So maybe it's a myth. Maybe it's a myth. Maybe we just busted them right it's here on this podcast. Probably not. We should tell people that <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. think it's a myth. Never mind. We're going to disregard. This is now a conspiracy podcast. Ooh, we should start one of those. <laughs> That'd be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> looking for Bigfoot together. <laughs> that'd be awesome. That's, that's I would do it very enthusiastically. We'll bring both cameras. Yeah. And uh, we'll get grainy footage. It'll be like the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be, <clears throat> be awesome. I'm done. I'm done. Jen's going to be pretty annoyed. That Where is Bigfoot? It's out west somewhere, right? Got to be. Oregon. Everything's in Oregon. It's in Oregon. Very, very, yeah. d- very dense jungle dense out there. Dense <laughs> jungle, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a rainforest out there. Yeah, I don't um, know. We should look that up, though, because I'd be down to go look for him. I, well, I guess we're taking a road. So I know he's not there, but I want to go see him. What we have to say is that... Uh, you know, we're going to give a talk at a conference in you mm. know West or something. That way, our wives don't disown us for right. going to look for Bigfoot. Next thing you know, <laughs> so uh, Mike got eaten by Bigfoot. I would take it super seriously. I'm not gonna lie. I have all the gear, <laughs> everything, everything we possibly. <laughs> this need. is the, uh, the stupid surveillance tracker thing. Right. Just, those shows are hilarious. Those poor guys. <laughs> Anyways, now here we go. Now we're getting comments about getting off topic. Here we go. Recurrence. Speaking of recurrence of our being off topic. Um, so they empirically treat patients with a second course of antibiotics if they've had any improvement or if they have an early recurrence. So they consider an early recurrence uh, less than three months. So if they start having symptoms in less than three months, they're going to treat them empirically. They would like to avoid um, the same antibiotic if possible, um, though I don't. I, so I, I presume they don't just try Zyfaxin again, but um, we'll probably we'll probably get to that. Anyways, if it's a recurrent symptoms greater than three months after initial antibiotic treatment, um, it might be good to do a repeat breath test just to make sure that's what it is. Um, Because usually, and and then treat it empirically, and um, usually that should do it. So if it doesn't do it um, after two courses uh, or the patient has progressive symptoms, you might want to consider a a different diagnosis. So it could be something... Um, alternative and they might not actually it, it, it could have had SIBO but they might have something else going on as well and then as far as like you said you can use especially if it was initially treated with Zyfaxin I would say if they weren't initially treated with that then try to get them Zyfaxin for the right. second but if um, the second round of antibiotics however if they were treated with Zyfaxin the first time you can repeat with the you same can re- yeah, medication you can repeat or, all, or uh, use alternatives yeah I knew we'd get to it I knew we'd get to it <laughs> Just needed a couple extra minutes to stall. <laughs> That's pretty much it. So it's pretty, still pretty simple. So you treat with Zyfaxin. If it doesn't work, use Zyfaxin or some other antibiotic. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then you might have knocked out their SIBO or they didn't have in the first place and you're looking at other things. Um, there are some alternative therapies that have been talked about and considered. So one is an elemental diet. Um, they try to reserve that for patients who can't tolerate antibiotics or maybe even as a last resort, if you're pretty positive, this is the issue and the antibiotics just aren't taking care of it. Um, so what an elemental diet is, is basically like, I think of it like parenteral nutrition, but you're drinking it. So it's like parenteral nutrition, but enteral. So it's, it's all liquid, uh, but it has all the, you know, components of what you would get in parenteral nutrition all the um, macro and micronutrients that you would need, but you're drinking it. Uh, so you're avoiding um, maybe certain food groups that would promote bacterial growth and that sort of thing. Uh, and they do that and not necessarily for a super long time. So there's not a whole lot of data behind it. Um, 
and they are pretty expensive. Uh, there's poor compliance, tastes pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, but in a retrospective study with 124 patients uh, with methane or hydrogen predominated SIBO, uh, they were treated exclusively with an elemental diet for two weeks. Um, if if they were still if they still had normalized by two weeks, they could continue to three. Uh, but at two weeks, 74 of the 93 patients, so 80 percent, had a normal breath test. It's not bad. Um, five of the 19 subjects who were treated uh, for an additional week had a normal breath test uh, by day 22 uh, for a cumulative response over three weeks of 85%. Um, so that's pretty good. And um, uh, 14 of the patients discontinued the diet and were excluded from the analysis. Uh, but like I said, it's a super small study reserved for last resort, but I guess interesting. There's also there's not like a lot of evidence for it because all the evidence is surrounding um, IBS. But the FODMAP diet that we talked about right. um, when we talked about IBS guidelines is um, something you know some GI docs may want to try um, in their patients. But um, it, there's not really any great evidence to support its use specifically in SIBO. Um, probiotics. They've done some studies. They actually did a, a meta analysis back in 2017 that included 18 different studies um, and they were trying to treat uh, or at least help the SIBO symptoms um, with giving probiotics, which I don't really even understand the logic there, but yeah. Um, 18 different studies were included in the meta-analysis, no significant difference at all um, in the incidence of uh, SIBO. When you were looking at patients um, that were on the placebo, or I mean the probiotics versus placebo. Right. So yeah, not... Not, Not great. great. No. Um, you also want to make sure that you hit the underlying cause. So we talked about risk factors for it. Um, so all patients should receive therapy directed against whatever the underlying causes. So um, if you have medications that might decrease intestinal motility, like opioids and benzos, um, you might want to reevaluate that. Uh, or uh, PPIs that could cause achlorhydria, reevaluate that. Um, prokinetics are a useful adjunct in patients with SIBO. If it has an underlying, if they have an underlying dysmotility issue, um, yeah. If sometimes you can have fistulas associated with SIBO, they might require surgery. It can be more serious, so just uh, whatever that is, make sure you're evaluating that as well. Um, I'll mention too. There's not really any great data as far as this is a treatment option, but statins have been shown to inhibit growth and production of methane in several methano um, brevibacter isolates. So obviously no studies here to see uh, if they have, you know, methanogen overgrowth and if it's an actual treatment option. Worst case scenario, if you have a patient you've been trying to get on a statin for a long time and they just happen to have SIBO, you can be like, look, this <laughs> may not help at all, but <laughs> it also might. And so we should put you on a statin and, you know, then you get them. We might you save your life from a heart attack. Yeah. So, yeah, you'll have a lot of bacteria in your gut, but your heart will be better. <laughs> so there, there you go. That's uh, some, some uh, for those of you looking for research projects, knock, That'd be it, knock it out. Um, lastly, there can be situations where you might prophylax with antibiotics in certain patients. Uh, I don't think this is highly recommended, but um, it would be reserved for uh, pretty severe recurrent cases. So they have some criteria. Uh, patients with greater than four distinct and well-documented episodes within one year. So four SIBO treatments basically in one year. Uh, and also risk factors that might cause them to have recurrent SIBO. So uh, short bowel syndrome, maybe uh, jejunal diverticulitis. Um, so in those cases, sometimes they'll use antibiotics periodically. So five to 10 days out of every month. 
um, or every other week. Uh, they change around the antibiotics to, to prevent resistance. Uh, at least they're doing that. Um, so the frequency with which the antibiotics are rotated varies. Uh, it could be every month. It could be every six months. But um, I don't think there's any great guidance for that. But that is something that you could possibly see. Some experimental meds going on. Yeah. I, I, that, that kind of stuff, and obviously doing the clinic setting that I'm in, we don't do very much experimental <laughs> medicine. But they're, they're, like I feel like I like the whole family medicine vibe where you get to do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. However, there's something to be said, though, about like being so specialized that you're getting to try a new treatment. That would be pretty, right. pretty fun. Right, stuff that hadn't been tried before. Yeah, That's like, pretty cool. Let's try, uh, let's try monthly antibiotics. We'll do five days. We'll do 10 days over here. Right. There's no guidelines. We're but gonna make the guidelines. There's, so there's no... I guess there is a wrong, but within a certain parameters, there's no being wrong, you know, because nobody's yeah. done it before. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That'd be cool. That's something you said about that. It'd be fun. So I don't think there's anything else to know about SIBO. Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> you now know everything. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, and we really appreciate all the support. Um, thank you so much for those of you who have subscribed on Patreon. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying the lectures and the slide sets and all that good stuff. Um, I've had some cool, cool uh, kind of comments and feedback on that. Some, a few people are using it to study uh, for like BCPS and things like that. Nice. So who knows? We're actually a uh, BCPS study course now. <laughs> Didn't know that, but now yeah, we do. Um, but that's uh, unless they do horrible in the exam, then it's don't not you, our fault it's at not all. It's not our fault. Not their fault. Should have studied harder. I was learning about SIBO. There was nothing about that on the exam. <laughs> not one SIBO <laughs> question on the entire BCPS. Um, but you know, if you guys have any questions, concerns, comments, obviously you can always reach us through email. Um, our emails will be in the show notes. Get in touch with us on any of the social media platforms if you want. Um, you text us directly at 415-943-6116. Um, and then, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, or just chat with you if you want. That's cool too. That's always fun. But like, hey, I had one guy text me and he said, just want to see how this text thing thing worked like podcast see you later (laughs) that was hilarious love it so yeah um for all you guys uh in the process of applying to residencies and all that fun stuff good luck don't let the stress get to you it'll all work out in the end i've had several conversations this week with students of or former students of mine from rotations that thought the world was ending because they haven't heard from quite enough places to interview i'm like you'll be fine (laughs) you're 25 years old you got a long time to be worried about failing at life. Yep. So if you guys are stressed, take a big deep breath, enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you next time. Have a great one.